In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this latest in our ongoing dialogues on presenting a in a simplified manner the belief system the islamic belief system <clears throat> for those who have been following along from the beginning we know that we've covered until now uh, all the topics related to uh, the existence of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We talked about the materialist worldview. We spent a little bit of time talking about, you know, the beginning of, uh, you know, the, the universe as we may refer to it, the beginning of creation. We also talked about the beginning of human life and the difference between a human being and a non-human being. Uh, and how is that different and we talked about what we can refer to as the soul uh, and different ways of proving it and inshallah there will be more on that and then we spent a little bit of time talking about uh, this topic of the uh, the topic of the <clears throat> divine justice uh, and the problem of evil in the world because the this problem of evil in the world is considered one of the most problematic nowadays for people who believe in religion uh, and one of the main reasons why a lot of people end up not believing in god not believing in a religion rejecting the idea of faith altogether because they cannot reach their a proper conclusion convincing conclusion when it comes to the issues surrounding the problem of evil in the world so we spent a good amount of lectures on that topic inshallah they were beneficial and then from there we went into uh, the topic of general prophethood and we talked about the reason and the necessity for human beings to need this extra source of knowledge uh, which is revelation which comes to them through these people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends to guide human beings uh, that we refer to as prophets and messengers and we talked about their main traits we talked about uh, why these people need to carry these specific types of traits uh, and what is the ultimate purpose when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends all these people to guide humanity what is the outcome of this what is the uh, you know aim at which humanity is supposed to move uh, and which it's supposed to understand uh, and once this was done, we moved on to the topic of the specific prophethood of Prophet Muhammad uh, where we spent a little bit of time trying to understand in what way is he a prophet? How do we establish that? What is his main miracle? The authenticity of the Holy Quran. And uh, once all of that was done, we also added a couple more lectures to talk about, uh, you know, uh, some uh, questions that we had received specifically about uh, how come is it in Arabic why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal it to these people specifically and in Arabic specifically 
And is that actually compatible with this claim that Muslims have that their religion is supposed to be eternal and universal? And with that, we kind of wrapped up the topic of general prophethood and specific prophethood, and we moved on to the topic of imamah. So in our mini-series, in the series that we're creating for each one of these topics, we actually just finished the overview that we wanted to give of the topic of the imamah. And so today I thought we would do a quick review of the topic. Unfortunately, none of you uh, got back to me since the last uh, lecture when we asked, uh, what do you want me to cover uh, as a next topic? And I will ask it again. Uh, and you can give your answers now. You can write them. You can write them on the group uh, in the next day or two uh, to give me a bit of time to prepare. Um, and I have some, some ideas for you. Uh, but the month of Muharram is very close and we're probably going to be off for a couple of weeks uh, related to uh, the activities around the month of Muharram uh, and Ashur at least for a couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, we don't want to start maybe a new big topic that re requires many more lectures when uh, we're, we only have a couple of weeks to go before uh, coming into the month of Muharram. So all of that to say, please let me know what you'd like to discuss for maybe two weeks, two more weeks. Uh, and uh, I'll give you some ideas too at the end. And then we can, inshallah, resume after the uh, you know commemoration of the events of Muharram that we will have. For today, inshallah, I will try to keep it short. Uh, if possible, I would invite you to actually either use the chat function or to speak up. Uh, unmute yourselves and speak. Um, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I just want to make sure that these five to six lectures that we just spent together discussing the topic of imamah have been properly assimilated and understood. And then we can open it up for uh, a bit more of a Q&A regarding this topic to see if there are any questions, concerns left about it or anything else. Uh, and then that will be a wrap for the topic of imamah, inshallah. Uh, praying to God that it was, you know, useful and beneficial and that we've added clarity and a little bit of a systemic, you know, uh, logical, strong foundation for this uh, part of our belief system. So today is simply a review of the topic of Imam. As you remember, inshallah, we spent a little bit of time explaining why this topic is important. And we even made the case that it would not be an exaggeration to say that perhaps, if it's properly understood, I don't want this to be misunderstood, the topic of imamah, given the manner in which we understand it and how we presented it, might actually be even more important than the topic of uh, the afterlife and the topic of prophethood and the topic of the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his attributes. Not in the, in the sense of where it falls logically. The logical sequence is still that you need to establish the existence of Allah and his attributes. You need to establish prophethood in general, the prophethood of the Holy Prophet, and that will get you to the imamah. But once you've established imamah and you know who your imam is, then that becomes more of a fundamental belief than the rest of the beliefs. Because everything that you thought you knew is now going to be 
dependent on what this imam is going to tell you. This is now the person alive in there with you, telling you what you're supposed to believe. As opposed to you trying to rely on your reason to reach your conclusions, now you have access to an imam. Now you have access to the divine knowledge that we talked about that the imams carry, and that will give you what you need to know in terms of divine guidance. And that's why we said, without even me needing to go and trying to understand, let's say, what happens in the afterlife, now I have access to an imam. So that access to the imam becomes more, takes priority, takes precedence, comes first before going to the afterlife before going to prophethood, before going to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his existence and his attributes. Not, again, in the logical sequence, you still have to follow the logical sequence we presented. But in terms of reaching the truth, knowing what the truth is, this is where you start understanding why the topic of imama is perhaps even more important than everything else. Because everything else will depend on this one. If your belief in imama is that this is someone sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if the imam is actually sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, uh, to guide humanity, then you are going to rely on this person to get your knowledge and to get your guidance. Okay, so inshallah this point is clear. Now, with that in mind, here is where, you know, I'd invite you to, to jump in if you can, either through the chat or by taking the microphone uh, and unmuting yourself. So first question. When we went through the, when we began this topic and we talked about it a couple of times, we said that the topic of imama is perhaps the most controversial, the most talked about, the one that causes the most disagreement and the most, you know, uh, controversy in Islam. And you look at the history of Islamic theology and you see that there's a lot of that. Perhaps no other topic has required so much writing and so much energy and so much ink and paper. Okay, so if, if we keep all of this in mind, could someone not come back and say, because of how controversial this topic is, it's simply better not to talk about it. It's simply better to avoid it as a topic. So do you agree or disagree based on what we said? Do you agree or disagree with this, that we should avoid this topic entirely because of how controversial it is? And if yes, why? And if no, why? Is anyone going to jump in? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, uh, assalamualaikum. Alaikum uh, I guess I would disagree with uh, with the question that you posed. Uh, my answer would be that it would be the same thing as when we discussed the existence of God and whether it's merely just more worth it to just not uh, look into the topic because it's it's it, it like it, it causes so much controversy whether to find out the real answer or not or whether to believe in God or not. Uh, I I think it's like kind of falls into the same category as. Uh, imama, you can't just avoid a topic just because there could be controversial topics about it. Um, and it's more worth it to find an answer, yes or no, like rather than just ignoring the whole topic. Very good answer. 
What if someone says that uh, it causes discord and disunity in Islam and we are not supposed to do that? Uh, uh, this is just me, but I, I think, uh, I guess my response would be that it's not about just causing disunity and disregard, but it's about finding the absolute truth. That is definitely part of the answer. Anyone else wants to jump in? I can jump in if it's okay. Yes, go ahead. Assalamu alaikum, Sayyid. I would say that to get to the truth, you'd have to, you'd have to go through the process of eliminating the lies. And you can't go through with that unless you go with discord with the liars. Like, whether we like it or not, there's liars out there. There's criminals. There's, uh, there's corrupt politicians. There's corrupt everything. So whether you like it or not, you're going to have to hurt somebody's feelings to get to the truth. Because and hurting and getting hurt isn't necessarily bad if, if it has the ultimate, if, if, if we get to the ultimate goal, which is getting to the truth. It's an excellent point uh, that you're mentioning, and it's true, uh, but it's kind of similar to what, uh, so to, to what the previous answer was, which is a part of the answer is the truth comes first. And so you guys are concentrating on the truth comes first. You said, for instance, that um, you know, someone is going to get hurt and it might not even be a bad thing. My question is, do people necessarily have to get hurt or is there another way? And we talked about this. I think I think maybe I think maybe I, I would look back at prophets the prophet saying to the people and he would say that if I'm wrong then help me out and if you're wrong then let me help you out and if and the problem is is that uh, yeah you're right like we shouldn't look at it as we get hurt to get to the truth even for us Shia that we think we're right when we have a discussion with somebody we have to not get hurt if they have a good point and uh, it's because if they're right then we'll be saved and if we're right then they'll be saved so that's that's another way you could look at it as you shouldn't get hurt really exactly excellent points so basically it comes down to the ethics of the conversation the ethics of the dialogue that if i want to reach the truth it's about the truth it's about my it's not about my feelings or yours uh, and it's not about personal things. It's not about emotions. It's it's about the truth. And so, if it's about the truth, it should be no different. Say when you know when two scientists sit and discuss, uh, I don't know, two different theories about gravitation or about uh, uh, I don't know uh, climate or about it. It can get heated. Of course, there might be disagreement. It doesn't mean that people all have to agree on the same end result. But so long as the disagreement is happening in a respectful, cordial place where people feel that they are allowed to have their opinions, to research and to try to find the truth, then there is no issue. People have that space and they, you know, may, may, the, best, may the best argument win, as the Holy Quran always says. So excellent point. Now, we presented two main theories about Imam. We said there is a Sunni school of thought and the Shia school of thought. The Sunni school of thought, Hatta, we save a little bit of time. I can see that it's moving quickly. I'll, go, uh, I'll cover some of it and then I'll ask you for some of it. The Sunni school of thought basically said there is no one way, one, one shape, size, fits all when it comes to this notion of imamah. And we looked at the different categories or the different 
models that were adopted to identify who the imam is. And everything boils down to what they consider an imam, really in the sense that we're talking about, uh, is going to be the political leadership of Islam. And how is this person appointed? It doesn't really matter. There are a, a few theories that were put in place based on the reality of what happened. So we saw in the Saqifa, you know, Abu Bakr was chosen because apparently a majority uh, of people decided that it would be him who would succeed the Holy Prophet. And then, uh, you know, he appointed Umar. And then Umar uh, appointed six people among whom, and we explained how it was done. They had to decide amongst themselves who the person would have to be. And then Uthman, when, that's how he was chosen. And then when Uthman was uh, chosen, he actually was assassinated because he created too much corruption. And then the people actually came and kind of forced Imam Ali السلام, to take back the Khilafah. The Imam was assassinated by the Khawarij and Muawiyah together and Muawiyah took it by force. And so if you ask, so which, which model is the correct model? They say all of these were legitimate and fine. And even other ones are also considered legitimate and fine. And we say this is not where legitimacy comes from. Legitimacy can only come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if he says you're allowed to do it this way or that way, that's what gives it legitimacy. Otherwise, you cannot just say people can represent religion in this manner. And if they're not, if they're not then don't claim to be representing religion. Say this is just the political component of it, not the religious component. So what does, what does the Shia school of thought say about this whole thing what they say is we want the legitimacy to come from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this can only be done through the appointment of the person from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is a very important point sometimes there's this misconception that the shia believe that the holy prophet appointed by himself this person imam ali salam because let's say he was his cousin and his son-in-law and he was a good guy and you know he's you know, no less than the others, and he had done some pretty good things for Islam. And so he put it all together, the Holy Prophet, at a per, as a personal opinion, matter of personal decision, he, sh he decides to favor Imam Ali Alayhi We completely reject that. And unfortunately, there are even some Shia who believe this. The Holy Prophet's appointment of Imam Ali Alayhi is not his personal appointment. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's appointment of Imam Ali through the Holy Prophet, because he's the one communicating the message. And this is where we say, okay, so what do we need from this person? What else do we need in addition to the fact that they have to be appointed from Allah? And we said we need them to be infallible and we need them to be, to have access to divine knowledge. Okay, so when we put all of this together, we get this notion of an imam. Someone who is divinely appointed, someone who has divine knowledge, and someone who has infallibility. So these are the main traits of the imam. So my question to you is, why did we say that those have to be the main traits of the imam? And so the answer is, it should be one thing. It cannot be each one of them separately. Why are we looking for someone to be this package of divinely appointed, infallible, and finally, uh, divinely appointed, infallible, and with access to divine knowledge? Does it remind you of another group of people who had to play that role? And so they needed those specific characteristics? Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu rahmatullah. Uh, it reminds me of uh, prophethood. It's the same characteristics. Exactly. 
So, and so what does that, what does this tell us, Ali, what does this tell us about Imam? Uh, that it's, it's an extension to prophethood, basically. Exactly. And this is where, so if someone says, and this is a big objection, so you can take it on or leave it to someone else, let me know. Uh, but I'm interested in what you think. If someone objects and tells you, okay, but so are you basically saying that the prophet's mission was incomplete? And that, you know, there was a shortcoming in, in his delivering of the message that we need imams to continue the role of prophethood uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that he is the seal of prophets? Uh, well, we said that uh, the prophet's life was very eventful. And um, even his short mission, even with a short time period of his mission, it was full of events. So he didn't really have a chance to, uh, I guess, sit down and teach everybody the the jurisprudential rulings for everything so we need an extension excellent excellent point thank you so much Ali. okay so this is why we need those traits because these people are playing the same role as the prophets were playing they are divinely appointed they need to be able to represent religion they need to be able to when they act that people say this is the role model that everybody follows and to be able to feel comfortable with the answers that they give us otherwise they're no different than scholars they make mix they may make mistakes they may know the truth or not they may tell the truth or not okay like everybody else but in that case they are not representatives of religion they're just representatives of themselves and so if we continue with the discussion, when we talked about the appointment, we concentrated on a number of verses of the Holy Quran, as well as the event of Ghadir. Okay, and we said which verses were revealed before and after. Question to you guys, it should be very quick. Is the event of Ghadir, the importance of the event of Ghadir is what? Is it, is it because the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali السلام, at that time? Uh, is it the only time that Imam Ali السلام, was appointed as, uh, you know, the, the Imam or the Khalifa, whatever they may, what you may want to call him? Uh, and in what way is it special? What's the difference between this and, let's say, any other event that uh, may refer to this? And do you know of any? I, I can answer it again if it's okay. Go ahead, say it. Um, it's eventful. It's different from any other time the Prophet appointed Imam Ali because it was the last sermon for Prophet Muhammad. And it was the last Hajj as well. And it was on a very hot day where he put the Muslims he put the Muslims in a tough situation where they had to come back. Some, were, some waited for the whole day. And... Uh, that means that there's something important for the Prophet to say. It's not for any reason that this happened. And that's why Ghadir is special. It's different than any other time the Prophet appointed Imam Ali. So what were other times? Can you give one example of another time? Another time is when, is when uh, the ayah of the Quran came down of the ring, when the ring came. And that's, that's another time, really. Okay, that's the second one, and that's good. And another time that we discussed was, uh, unless anyone wants to jump in. So we said at the beginning of the mission of the Holy Prophet.
Uh, I can answer it again. Yeah, go ahead, Ali. So when, when he was inviting his uh, relatives uh, in, in the first invitation, he said, whoever joins me will be my successor, uh, among other, other traits that he gave. And Imam Ali was the first person who spoke up. So in that occasion, it's as if he was announced as a successor. And why, uh, you know, follow-up question, Ali. So why is that important? Why that specific event? What does it tell us? Uh, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Okay. Does anyone want to take that on? Is it because the Prophet asked his relatives that you guys want to do it? So he basically gave them a chance. But in, in Ghadir Khum, he did it. Like he just, he already, like... It, yes, absolutely, but it, it's, uh, there's another component to, to this specifically, and so because we don't have a lot of time, allow me to say, what it tells us is from the beginning of the Prophet's mission, it was clear who the successor is. Because when we're looking at Ghadir Khum, it's happening in the year 10. When it's, it's happening in the last year, in the last year, a few months before the passing away of the Holy Prophet. If you look at the events of of uh, uh, when the Holy Prophet took the verse from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Shu'ara so basically go and warn the, your kinsmen or the closest of your tribesmen this is the very beginning of the mission when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ordering the Prophet to start explaining the mission to his close circle this is not even before the public announcement of Islam to everyone Okay, what's the abima tu'mar? That's when it became very public. In this case, it's still very contained to the family members. And in that case, the Holy Prophet was already announcing Imam Ali alayhi salam as his khalifa and his, and his wazir. Okay, that's the importance of that. Then we talked about infallibility. And we went through a number of verses in Surah Al-Ahzab, Ayat Al-Tadhir, 33-33, easy to remember. In Surah Al-Nisa, uh, uh, 459, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that you have to obey those who have been vested with authority among you, and we talked about that at length, how can Allah say to obey someone without any restrictions? It means they have to be infallible. We talked about who deserves the rank of imama in the Quran when Ibrahim prayed for his progeny to, have, uh, to become the imams after him, and Allah answered that those who commit any injustice, i.e. any sins, they can never become uh, an imam, therefore the imam has to be someone who's infallible. Uh, and the verse 3224, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses the imams based on their patience and their knowledge. And then hadith al-thaqalain, people who are together with the Qur'an. And if you're always with the Qur'an and the Qur'an is always with you, it means you're equal to the Qur'an. You cannot sin. The Holy Prophet would never say, follow someone he's equal to the Qur'an. If there's any possibility that this person is ever going to sin, and this is, you know, centuries before these people are born and then when you look at their lives you see no one can come back and say there was ever a sin or a mistake or an ignorance or not knowing something or not doing something right so this was a topic on infallibility and then when we talked about the knowledge of the imam we said the manner in which the holy prophet raised imam Ali salam, what he would teach him that all the muslims are in consensus that he was the most scholarly the most well-learned the most knowledgeable of all the companions of the holy prophet and then this knowledge was passed on to uh, the imams. And of course, we don't believe that the knowledge of the imams is like a, 
normal human knowledge that you can just pass on. The Imams, no one has ever said in their lives that they went and learned anything from anyone. They sat in a school or went to a teacher and yet they, they all seemed to know everything there is to know about anything and everything. Okay, so uh, this is part of the whole discussion on the knowledge of the Imams. And then we talked about to, to really you know, bring it home, we talked about this idea of the knowledge of the Imam as uh, the difference between the person who was with Prophet Sulaiman that in the Ruwayat is referred to as Asif ibn Barkhiya, who has a, some knowledge or a knowledge of some of the book, as opposed to the one who has the knowledge of the book and how much difference there is and what you can do with a little bit. So how much can you do with the whole book? Okay, and we went through a number of narrations that basically tell us when the Imams talk about knowledge, what they mean. And I, 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 uh, I'd like to conclude this with, what if someone tells you, so are you meaning that uh, these Imams, uh, they uh, are revealed to, is this the same revelation as prophets? And is this possible to, to say that there is a human being who is not a prophet and yet he is still receiving some sort of you know knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly is this possible and so what's the answer to that anyone wants to venture uh, an answer what does the Holy Quran say? Does it say that anyone else may be able to get some knowledge directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may communicate with anyone? Does that make them directly a, does, do they have to be a prophet? Or does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicate with some who are not prophets? I think Allah definitely doesn't. Uh, Allah communicates with uh, with uh, all different type of like not not all different, but like um, it, it's an open it's an open road. I I think. And do we have examples of this? Specific instances. Yes, when when the prophet communicated with uh, uh, Sayyida Maryam. You mean Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he communicated with Sayyidah Maryam? Yes, okay. when she was when she was giving birth. Okay. So when she was pregnant and when she got pregnant with Prophet Isa alayhi salam. Yes, and she was alone and then he sent her an angel. Yeah. So that's an excellent example. Another one, for instance, is the mother of Prophet Musa alayhi salam. Another one is when the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wa uha rabbuka ila nahl. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he has revealed to the to the bees so it's not even limited to just human beings Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has all sorts of ways to communicate with whomever he needs to he wants to and so it's not impossible for us to say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has communicated with the chosen ones ones amongst his servants especially the ones who are continuing with the uh, mission of the holy prophet uh, until the end of times and the last topic that we discussed and addressed was the topic of Imam al-Mahdi al-Sharif. And very quickly, here are the topics that we talked about. We looked at the consensus in Islam 
uh, about the personality, the existence of a man who will come at the end of times by the name of Al-Mahdi from the progeny of the Holy Prophet to reestablish justice on earth after it has been filled with injustice and oppression and corruption. And we said that all Muslims agree on this and as a matter of consensus, they, in fact, as I told you, books have been written by Sunni scholars saying that not believing in Imam al-Mahdi is uh, basically takes you out of Islam altogether. Okay, so in Shiri thought, the difference really is that the Shia believe that the Imam has already been born and that he is an occultation. Uh, and uh, this is the part that uh, there's a disagreement with others. And so we talked about this a little bit. We talked about the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised in the scriptures, including the Holy Quran, that he is going to uh, allow this, the, the history of humankind to reach uh, that uh, purpose for which they were created, which is the establishment of a divine divinely just society, a truly just society that we can consider to be a society that pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is run in the manner that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, and this is going to be at the hands of Imam al-Mahdi Does it mean that humanity sits back passively? Absolutely not. We have work to do to prepare for this. Then we talked about why is the Imam in occultation, and we gave three reasons. Can you tell me what the Three reasons might be for the Imam to be in Ghaybah, for the Imam to be in occultation. Uh, I could think of two of them. Go ahead. So one is for his own protection, because uh, some of his forefathers were, or all of them were oppressed and, and killed. And uh, another reason was just because it's part of God's plan, it's part of his own, and uh, that's all there is to it. So those are two excellent answers. There's one more. So the first one, and we went through the narrations for these. We gave uh, some from the narrations. We said the Imams have said, one of them is for the protection of the Imam. We said one of them is, there is something unknown. There is a secret that would only be revealed as the narrations tell us. It will only be revealed once the Imam reappears and he will tell us why he was in occultation all this time. And then there's a third that we mentioned. Does anyone remember? It could be Ali or anyone else. So the other reason that we mentioned is that we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to use this as a test. He wants to see who can remain steadfast, who can remain solid in their faith, committed in their faith, and it will be extremely difficult as time goes by. The more time goes by, the more people will leave this faith. And those only who are going to be able to hold on to their faith as someone is holding on to a, you know, a burning piece of coal in their hand. How painful and difficult will that be? Well, those who can remain faithful in that kind of world are the ones, that rare, are the ones who are also going to be able to keep a faith in their last, in the last of the Imams, the, the 12th Imam, Imam Mahdi that's how difficult it would be to keep your faith in him. Now, I think with this, we have kind of covered the main topics and main points that we wanted to present related to the topic of Imam. If you have any questions, any concerns, any issues related to anything that we've said until now, please ask them now. Yeah, I have a question. Go ahead. 
Um, so we talked about the the proofs for the infallibility of the imma. Yeah. But uh, Sayyidah Fatima Zahra alayhi salam isn't an, isn't uh, doesn't hold that position. So is there a logical proof for her infallibility, or is it from narrations, or do we get that from somewhere else? So there's a few answers we can give to this. The first one is, uh, how did we establish the infallibility of prophets and the infallibility of the imams? We established it in one way, kind of an after the fact, when we say if this person has really truly been sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide humanity, then it needs to be someone who is infallible. That's one. Two, we also said that it's impossible for us to know who is a prophet and who isn't. Who is an imam and who isn't. Why? Because we can't tell. We don't know what's going on in people's hearts. We don't know just how good or bad someone truly is. This is all with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All we see is the external appearance of these things. So in certain cases, we do need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell me, and this person is infallible. And this person has divine knowledge. And this person is a prophet or an imam. This is the importance of the divine appointment. So this is a general, uh, these are the general points that apply to anyone who is infallible, including Sayyidah Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salatu In addition to this, so keeping this in mind, that I need someone to tell me if someone is infallible or not. So has someone ever said something similar about uh, Fatima alayhi salam that we can consider to be a proper proof that she is infallible? Yes, the consensus of the Muslims that the Holy Prophet has said in multiple narrations, so it's not just one, so it's not just one that is mutawatir. It's in different instances and in different narrations, basically the Holy Prophet saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased when Fatima is pleased and angered when Fatima is angered. That is one proof. So this is a consensus agreement in Islam that the Holy Prophet has said this. Now imagine the Holy Prophet says this about any of us. What would that mean? It would basically mean that we are never in an emotional state that is not entirely compatible with the truth. Never are we in a state, really consider this, ponder this, we are never in a state that is not 100% compatible with the truth. So that if I get angry, it is equal to Allah being angry, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if I am happy, it means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is happy. Now, can we say this about a normal human being? Any human being, no matter how good they are. Are they ever not going to be in a state where they may perhaps be happy for something that may make Allah happy or not? It may not be intentional, but they may still be happy about something that is not 100% compatible with the truth. And on the other side, they may be angry with something but that anger is for a personal reason. That anger is for something that does not make people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala angry. And the Holy Prophet has said about Fatima that she, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if she is pleased, then Allah is pleased. Allah, the rida of Fatima and the rida of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are equal. The sakhat of Allah and the sakhat of Fatima are equal. Okay, and we have multiple narrations on this. The other big proof, the second one, is the same proof that we used for Ayat al-Taghir. When we talked about infallibility, one of the biggest proofs we have is Ayat al-Taghir. 
Everything we said about Ayat al-Tathir, so please go back and listen to the infallibility part, applies to Fatima al-Zahra first and foremost. When the Holy Prophet would come for in the you know, shortest duration, and the minimum in the narrations, he did this for six months, and he most likely did this for nine months and perhaps more, depending on the narrations, every single day. The Holy Prophet would come to show all the Muslims what he's doing. He would knock on the door of, uh, you know, Fatima al-Zahra salam, the house of Imam Ali and Fatima, and he would say, uh, he would read the verse, and he would say, and he would call them to prayer. Okay, and so these are examples very clear that whatever applies, whoever is included, and whatever is included in Ayat al-Tatheer, whatever it proves, and we said what it proves is the existential purification of Ahl al-Bayt Al-Tatheer al-Takwini, this is not Tashri'i, because Allah wants the purification of everyone, but he has only given it to some. This irada is different. These are two different types of irada. Whoever is included in ayat al-Tathir has been purified by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the same tahara that the Quran refers to in Surah Al-Waqi'ah when it says about the Quran, لا يمسه إلا This is not, yes, there is a wudu, but there is a reality to the Quran. And you know, Inshallah, one day we talk about this. I've talked about this in, in a recent lecture on, on uh, uh, understanding Surah Al-Qadr. I talked about the different levels of the Qur'an. And the Qur'an, when it says that it is fi kitabin makdun, there's a Qur'an, innahu la Qur'anum kareem. The Qur'an, is this is an honorable Qur'an, in a hidden book. Okay, so there is a reality of the Qur'an that is much higher than the one that has been revealed to us. And that one can only be touched by the most pure. The ones who have been purified. لا يمسهو ذات كتاب إلا المطهرون. This is the tathir that is for Ahl al-Bayt salam the five Ashab al-Kisa' with the Holy Prophet, so his daughter Imam Ali salam and Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein salam So whatever applies to them applies to her. Does she play the role of an imam? No. But we have narrations from the imams that basically tell us that she is of a greater rank and a greater degree than the rest of the imams themselves. And if it were not for the creation of Imam Ali alayhi salam, there would be no one who would be worthy of marrying her. So this would include the rest of the imams. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the only person worthy of marrying Fatima al-Zahra is Imam Ali alayhi salam, we start getting an idea of who this incredible creature that Fatima al-Zahra truly was. And this deserves its own lectures. It's an excellent question. Uh, but inshallah, with this, we've kind of wrapped it up for Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam. Any other questions or concerns? Okay, so in the last few minutes, uh, brothers, I just wanted to see if you have any ideas about, you know, for a couple of lectures, let me know what you'd like them to be. If you have them right now, let me know. Uh, if you want to think about it and write it on the group, that's excellent as well. Some, some ideas that I had uh, that I can share with you. We can spend a little bit more time uh, about Imam al-Mahdi, ajallah ta'ala, farajahu al-Sharif. If you want a little lecture about a specific topic, 
we can certainly do that related to the Imam. Uh, the topic of leadership in Islam is very interesting to me uh, and I wanted to make a, a series of lectures on it uh, but we can maybe have a discussion about it first uh, if you'd like to to better understand where your thoughts are uh, and to see what your vision is uh, for the leadership roles that uh, we have to play uh, and then we can just have a, an open Q&A whether it's related to the topics that we've covered or anything else. We haven't had one of those in a while because we, we're not seeing each other. Uh, we used to sit and, and make sure that anything and everything uh, that we can address and we can cover is covered. So we can definitely have one of those two uh, in one or two uh, lectures. So if you have any ideas right now, go ahead, share them. Uh, if you want to keep them to the group, then write them afterwards, send them over. Uh, and uh, as I said, I'm open to, to anything and everything. Inshallah, we make uh, good use of our time. Uh, and inshallah, this was uh, beneficial and good for you. I'm still here for a few more minutes if anyone wants to interject with anything. Assalamu <coughs> alaikum, Sayyid. Um, so I would say, I would, uh, like, I would want to know in, this, in specifics, what we have to do to prepare for Imam al-Mahdi. Like, what's our job to, uh, to prepare for Imam al-Mahdi? And, uh, and also, I would like to know about like other different, uh, just different stories of different prophets. And like, because we, we skipped past through it, I remember. So just like, even, either, even if it's like one or two prophets, you know, just, just any that, would uh, connect with our situation today. Two and yeah, that's that. two excellent topics, Sayyid. I said. Anyone else? Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I have a topic that I would be interested in. I don't know if everybody would be interested in it, but um, the the theories behind like al faqih because it's it's a divisive issue I think today. So uh, just what are the theories behind it? What's the role of the marja and that that uh, subject? Okay. Anyone else? Um, something else I would like to hear is, I would like to know better is, uh, is Almil uh, Hadith, like just a bit more specifics into that. And how to compare different, like just the specifics and like how, like what to, like in specifics and what to see in the, in the Hadith and how to study them properly, how to compare them with other Hadith. And stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That uh, that gives me a few things to to work with. Let's see uh, what I can put together. Um, the topic of Wulayt al-Faqih, we can certainly talk about it, but I think I prefer to keep it for, for later. 
because I think I personally I see it as something a lot more secondary uh, for the time being. But we can certainly, uh, especially if it's more popular and people feel like they really want to know more about it, that it makes a difference in in their worldview and their understanding of religion. They can we can certainly uh, provide an, an overview of that. Yeah, it is a big topic, and for some reason, it uh, generates. Uh, incredible passions on all sides uh, of those who want to engage with it uh, but generally speaking yeah we can we can talk about it the different stories of prophets fascinating fascinating topic uh, inshallah one day we'll have the time and the energy and the uh, <laughs> lifetime to be able to give a proper series on the prophets lives uh, and I think exactly as you said uh, the relevance for this is not so much necessarily just the actual events of their lives, but the lessons that we can take. And so there are moral lessons, there are theological lessons, there are uh, all sorts of things that we can take and use in our lives. And a lot of this has to come from within. So once we know, then we can sit and think and reflect on it and see what we can take uh, from those stories. And there are stories that always come to life if you actually engage with them and think about them, they come to life for you personally. They may come to life in a different way for someone else. And this is the, the beauty of these stories. Uh, and then preparing for Muhammad Mahdi, Ajallah Ta'ala Farajah, uh, a very, very uh, nice topic that um, I think comes at the end of really knowing who the Imam is. The more we know who the Imam is, uh, the more it already helps us with this. But I think this is a very concrete question that you're asking. It's kind of on the day-to-day -day and in the general plan of life that we have. How does the Imam fit in? So this is a definitely a, an important and relevant topic that we need to keep in mind. And then Ilm al-Hadith, to be honest with you, I think for us to have a, a useful discussion about this, it cannot be a kind of a one lecture. A one lecture can certainly give you a kind of an overview uh, of the terms and of the big notions in, in Ilm al-Hadith. Uh, but the truth is we would need a series. You know, we can decide to make it, you know, 20 lectures, say, 10 lectures or 20 lectures uh, as an introduction to Ilm al-Hadith. Uh, if you guys are interested, we can certainly start something like that too. Uh, my personal opinion is that that would be a lot more useful than spending, say, one or two lectures only on it. I'm not sure how much of a kind of practical benefit you would get from just a couple of lectures on it. You need more uh, because it's a really, really big topic and, you know, uh, you don't really get anywhere. You basically, you, you get to know what some words mean uh, by giving just a couple of uh, lectures on the topic. So anyways, whatever your thoughts are on any of the things that I just said, please write them, use the group for this. That, that's what it's there for. Uh, and I'm keeping all of this and inshallah I'll come up with something that is useful for the next uh, couple of weeks uh, keep me in your prayers I will keep you in mind inshallah and uh, see you all soon